Oh, holy night, how many of you hit that high note with Laura at the end? <laughs> Mary claimed she did, so that's good. <laughs> Anybody have anything you want to praise the Lord about? Something good God's doing in your life? Yeah, Kathy. I know we got, he took our whole staff meeting talking about it the other, yesterday. It, it's amazing what God's doing. And we're really excited. Keep in prayer the missions trip that's coming up in February going over to Cambodia too. And the Lord's just doing some really neat things, getting us ready for that. So anything else you want to praise God about? Yes. Well, we're blessed to have you do it. Cool. Thanks for filling in. That was great. They, were, they normally uh, do a service every Sunday for convalescent home, and uh, they take their dog with them. And so they said tonight when he got his guitar and got in the car and left the dog, the dog was like, hey, was, was I kicked out of the band? You know? <laughs> Felt like that first Beatles drummer, you know. <laughs> Anything else that God's doing? Yes. All right. Praise the Lord. Excellent. That's great. Yes, Ann. Yeah, our younger son, Danny, is going to be going for second semester to school in in New York doing an architecture program with Syracuse University. So he'll have a chance to live in Manhattan for six, five or six months, so should be fun. <laughs> Bought him some brass knuckles. Yeah. <laughs> At 71, she just got saved, oh man. That's awesome. Anything else? Yes. Praise the Lord. We're we are blessed. I'm really thankful for this church too. Um, Okay, this uh, week, you know, tomorrow night, we'll have our Christmas Eve service right back here. Hope you can make it. Should be a special time. It always is. Um, and then, uh, of course, Christmas Day. Oh, Christmas Eve also in the morning is the surf session for the guys that want to go out surfing. They'll meet at 8.30 at Carl's Jr. down by Christianitas and carpool together down to uh, Old Man's to San Onofre. So um, if you're up for it, I'm not going to do it because I'm sick. I even had to drive on the motorcycle ride last night, so definitely not going in the water. But if you're more man than I am or woman, <laughs> just because it's old man doesn't mean girls can't go if they can surf or cook. And uh, <laughs> But that's tomorrow morning, then tomorrow night is uh, church and um, 
and then just the rest of the week we'll be back here on Sunday. But I pray that God just gives you an awesome Christmas and, and a time to really reflect on what it really means. So it's, uh, it's good to see you all. I'm proud of you coming to church tonight. I didn't know if I would just be by myself. And then Ann promised me she would come, so I thought, okay, this will work. Well, we're starting in on the book of Colossians tonight. What an incredible book Colossians is. It's, it's one of the most powerful books in the Bible. One of my favorite books. It ranks right up there in my top two or three books of the Bible. Um, it's an interesting book from a lot of different perspectives. Very relevant for today and some of the fads and things that are going on in churches you know, right up until this point. Paul wrote the book of Colossians about the same time he wrote Ephesians, probably sent both letters out at the same time. And they're similar in a lot of respects. As we go through, you'll see a lot of similar thoughts that he gives and, and even some verses that are very close to being the same. But their themes are a little bit different. Colossi, the city, is in um, present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, as it's sometimes called. If, you, if you're thinking of a map of the Mediterranean, and you go all the way to the east side of the Mediterranean, you have Israel all the way down that coast, and Lebanon up above it. Well, just north of that, that piece of land that juts out into the Mediterranean is present-day Turkey and what has traditionally been called Asia Minor. And in that area of Asia Minor were a lot of the first churches that Paul established, as well as several churches that he didn't personally establish, but he was involved with most of them. The seven churches that Jesus wrote to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are all in that area as well. Now, Ephesus where Paul spent three years as a pastor, is right on the coast, the Mediterranean coast of Asia Minor. Colossae is about 80 miles or so inland, so 80 miles or so east and a little bit north of Ephesus. In your Bible maps, it probably doesn't show Colossae, or maybe it doesn't, because Paul's missionary journeys never actually went to Colossae. It's an interesting feature of this church in this letter is that Paul, as far as we know, never actually went to Colossae. Colossae is a sister city and is right next door to Laodicea. And you remember Laodicea from Revelation chapter 3, the lukewarm church. Um, Paul sent this letter to Colossae and told them to pass this letter on to Laodicea as well, because they were right in the neighborhood. And this was pretty typical of of Paul's letters, they would pass them around from church to church. He also said, make sure you get the letter from Laodicea and read that, and that was probably a reference to the book of Ephesians that we have today. There could have possibly been another letter to Laodicea, but there's never been a, a, a trace of it found, so it's thought that probably they sent the the book of Ephesians to Ephesus and then said, after you read it and copy it, send it to Laodicea, told the Colossian church, hey, they're going to bring this letter to you, and when you get done with it, pass it on to Laodicea and circulate the book of Ephesus as well. Colossae at one time had been a pretty 
good-sized city, but by this time, by 60 AD, it was kind of deteriorating to where it was more or less of a podunk center. It wasn't um, a major, because it wasn't on a port, it was inland. It was on a major trade route, but more and more the port cities became the prominent cities. And so Colossae was a smaller town by this time. The church in Colossae was probably started um, by Epaphras, not to be confused with, with Epaphroditus from, from uh, Philippi. Epaphras was saved under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And then Epaphras went back home to Colossae and started to spread the gospel there, according to the book of Colossians. And so he's a prominent figure in here. By this time, while this letter was written, Paul was in prison in Rome. And Epaphras had come to Rome to bring Paul the news of some of the churches and to see if he could minister to him. And Epaphras ended up staying there in Rome with Paul for a, for a period of time. But Epaphras was probably the guy who first brought the gospel to Colossae. There's also a man named Philemon. You know him from the book of Philemon, which was written about this same time and perhaps sent out at the same time. Philemon, what, you remember, he had a slave named Onesimus who... Um, Paul led to the Lord in Rome while he was in prison, and he sent Onesimus as one of the ones who carried the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon to go back home to his master that he had run away from. Philemon had been his owner, and he had escaped. And Paul went to bat for him and, and spoke well of him and said, hey, if, if, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. He's a good guy. Philemon, who we don't know that much about, we do know that Philemon actually, the church in Colossae met in Philemon's house. And um, I, I believe that it's most likely that Philemon's son was the pastor of the church in Colossae, but it met in, at his home, as most of the churches met in homes. Now, Colossae, as a a city that was about as far east as any of the cities that we know of in, in New Testament times, seemed to have been really influenced by a lot of Eastern religion and Eastern mysticism. And they, they fell into a lot of what we call syncretism, which means blending the elements of several different religions together um, to, to become more seeker-friendly. And... Um, and so during this time, the beginnings of what later would, would become, uh, would degenerate into some pretty major heresies like Gnosticism, um, these were the early stages of what we would consider pre-Gnosticism. Gnosticism became, became a major force in Christianity about the second century A.D., and there are several Gnostic Gospels that were written during this time, fake Gospels meant to tell about Jesus from a Gnostic perspective. But a lot of the ideas of Gnosticism were already developing here in 60 AD in the city of Colossae, being influenced by the traders who would come back and forth from the east, from India and China and places like that. 
the basic tenets of their faith was, well, the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which just means knowledge. But they tried to make Christianity something that involved deep, secret, hidden knowledge. It was the notion that, okay, you could become a Christian, but you really needed to get into the deeper life in order to really get it. You weren't wanting to just be a surfacey kind of person. You needed to enter into those deeper, more intimate, spooky kinds of elements that there were some things that you just couldn't understand until you became more spiritual. Being spiritual was very important to them. And they had a notion of spirituality that involved basically everything that is immaterial is spiritual and is good, and everything that is physical is automatically bad. And so they developed a heresy that, that taught that Jesus actually didn't have a human body. Because Jesus was good, he was actually just a spirit being. And they say that when he walked on the sand, he didn't leave footprints, he didn't cast a shadow, because they couldn't understand how someone could be the son of God, could be any kind of divine revelation, and still have a physical body. They were totally against anything that was physical at all. And so they kind of, um, you know, developed this, this duality of phys- physical equals bad, spirituality equals good. And, and there was this secret knowledge that would allow you to gradually develop into this deep spiritual state. They also believed in sinless perfection. They believed that you could develop, if you got spiritual enough, you would get completely past sin. You could completely remove yourself from the limitations of the flesh and you would just be able to be such a spiritual person that you actually wouldn't sin anymore. Um, And of course, anything about the body was considered to be bad. They also had very well-developed and they were very interested in teachings about angels and angelic beings. They were fascinated by angels they had ideas about, you know, very, very um, intricately involved hierarchies of angels. Based on really just a few um, verses of Scripture that refer to principalities and powers, but they developed that and worked it. They believed in territorial spirits and all sorts of things. They also were really into demonic beings as well. Fascinated by the demonic very much into um, deliverance-type ministries and things like that because this is something that felt very spiritual as opposed to the reality of living the Christian life in the flesh. They loved to glamorize the uh, metaphysical and and the supernatural. They also, um, in through all of this, incorporated astrology, They were very into that, into magic and crystals and the use of drugs. All of that wrapped up into a dose of Christianity as well. Now, again, I'm talking about 2,000 years ago, and you're going, Dave, this sounds a lot like a lot of the fads that come in and out of the church today. 
exactly. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Colossians is so important, because there's nothing new under the sun. Heresies continue to repeat themselves. And so today you have people who believe that anything physical is bad. (coughs) Oh, these people also were very into legalism. So they incorporated a lot of Judaism, dietary restrictions and things like that into the whole mess too. Because see, they wanted to punish the flesh because the flesh is bad. The spirit is good. And of course, they were fascinated by tales of the demonic, even as today. There are churches that spend a considerable amount of their time casting demons out of Christians, which is completely bogus, but it's interesting. It's exciting. And communicating with angels and these stories about of people who are just always seeing angels talking to them. Oh, I looked out the window of my airplane and there was an angel on my wing. And it's like, yeah, um, I read that in a Christian book, but I, I saw it on the Twilight Zone <laughs> before that and I, I get it. But um, so the same kinds of kooky superstitions and this idea that Christianity is a immersing yourself into a deeper sense of almost mysticism and asceticism is something that goes contrary to Scripture. You certainly don't see any notion of it from Jesus. And here in the book of Colossians, he blows that out of the water as well as anything that would go beyond the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. He, Paul writes this letter to let him know, you don't need any deeper, you know, higher experience. You don't need to feel certain things. You don't need to immerse yourself in, in denying your flesh. You don't need to take on all sorts of restrictions in order to move your, manipulate the spirit into doing things for you. Everything that you need, it's already happened. It's already been done. In Jesus Christ, you have all that you need, and he is the preeminence. The book of Ephesians, the theme of the book of Ephesians is the church, the body of Christ. The the theme of the book of Colossians is Jesus Christ is preeminent as the head of the church. And so a lot of the ideas carry across, but boy, you understand here that Paul comes in and with a dose of reality and calling them on the carpet for pretending that deeper spiritual life is what it's all about. And, and you know, the book of Colossians is a book that people who are into finding a deeper mystical experience aren't really into because it just continues to emphasize the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. That's not to say that there shouldn't be experience that comes along with that, but it's what accompanies what God does, and if you turn experience into the end or into the pathway to get to the ultimate spirituality, then you've put it in a wrong, um, in the wrong place because it's all about Jesus. There are people who want to just focus on the Holy Spirit, but the Scriptures tell us the Spirit bears witness to Jesus, points to Jesus glorifies Jesus, never himself, 
The Father glorifies Jesus, has given everything over to his hand, has delegated all judgment to Jesus, gives all glory to Jesus. It starts and ends with Jesus. That's why Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is all about Jesus. It's not about experience. It's not about the Spirit. It's not about angels. It's not about demons. It's not about spooky weirdness. It's not about how you feel. It's not about the miraculous. It's about Jesus Christ, the good news of what he did on the cross, and the incredible truth of the fact that it's absolutely free, and that he has forgiven us of our sins, and that there's nothing more that needs to happen, no deeper insight that you need to gain through long laboring and fasting and whatever, that it's just Jesus, simply Jesus. And so that's what Paul sets out to to outline for us in the book of Colossians. And it would seem like to point out the fact that Christianity is about Jesus would seem like, duh, you know, of course it is. And yet it's amazing how soon we can fall away from having Jesus at the center of our awareness. It's amazing even as as Jesus himself wrote to the church in Ephesus, you guys are doing a bunch of good stuff, but you left your first love. How does that happen? And it happens when Jesus is something that you get over in order to get somewhere else. It happens when, when your faith becomes about something other than just Jesus. And so we can't be reminded too much that being a Christian is being a follower of Jesus, being someone whose life centers around Jesus. And so Colossians is a great place to bring us back to to that reality, to the reality of what our lives are about and what Christianity is all about. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul starts the letter with his own name, as he does in 13 of his 14 epistles. I know I'm holding out. I believe he wrote Hebrews. In that case, he didn't put his name in there. In fact, the first word in Hebrews is God. Um, By the way, an interesting side note to all you people who think you're so smart that you know better than me and you think Hebrews was written by someone other than Paul. Um, it was kind of cool when we were in Ireland. Um, we went to a uh, there's a there's a museum or a library there that a guy has some of the oldest New Testament documents that there are, older than the ones that they called the old documents. And as I was looking through those, there was a scroll from about before 150 A.D. That's a scroll called the uh, the Letters of Paul. And the first letter of Paul was Romans, the second, Hebrews. So I'm becoming, after seeing that, I'm even more convinced that Paul wrote Hebrews. But anyway, he definitely wrote Colossians. Paul, an apostle, one sent of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was with Paul there in Rome. Timothy wasn't imprisoned, but you were allowed to have guys come and help you when you were in prison, and there were several guys who were doing that at the time. 
I always want to mention whenever we come across an opening to Paul's books that Paul understood who he was and that he was who he was by the will of God. And it's important for us to discover who we are by the will of God, what God has designed for us, what he has called us to do. And when you're serving God and it really just feels right and it's starting to click, it's really starting to gel, a good reminder to say, wow, I am starting to do something that I am by the will of God. God has led me to this role. And he says to the saints, all Christians are saints, and faithful brothers in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul so often lumps grace and peace together. Everyone wants peace. It's what most people are striving for. But it's only understanding grace that will give you peace. When you understand grace, peace is no problem because there's no struggle anymore. Many of us spent many years as followers of Jesus, as Christians, not having peace, struggling to try to be good enough, to try to please people, to try to measure up. But it's when we understand grace that it's free, that it's already been done for us, Oh, man, it's just like, it's so amazingly relaxing. It's so amazingly freeing. And growing in grace is something that we need to do because when we grow in grace, we'll, we'll grow in peace. And it comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> we give, hang on just a second. Sorry. It's going to be great on the tape. Hopefully they can edit that out before they put it on the radio. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before, in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world. Paul, again, as I said before, he had never been to Colossae, but he had heard good things about what God was doing in Colossae, and so as Epaphras brought him that news, he was praying for them, and he was was thanking God for them, and it's much the same as so many of you have the opportunities as you hear about what God is doing in other places as a result of outreach and missionaries. Many of you hear about our missionaries, and then when missionaries are in town, you get to meet them, and that's really special. But you hear about the places where they serve, and it seems like a remote location. But understand that those places, and if you ever have the opportunity to go to them, you feel at home when you're there, especially if you've been holding them up in prayer, especially if you've been thanking God for them. And I really encourage you to make an important part of your prayer life those results of outreaches and to take the time to contact the missionaries and get their prayer requests and encourage them. It, it makes such a difference. It means so much. And, and the fruit of what 
we do here as God works in our midst and makes it possible for us to help others go out and as people from our own body go out and serve the Lord, that's our church out there. That's an extension of who we are. And Paul saw Colossae this way, and I love that he loved them so much and was thanking God for them and was praying for them, even though people could go, well, it's not really your church, it's really Epaphras' church. He didn't care. Paul was just glad for what God was doing. He was just thankful for the fact that God was at work. And so when, when we have the opportunities, it's important to do that. Um, one of our missionaries, David, is here tonight who's over in, in the Ukraine. And David is so faithfully serving the Lord in a little town called Obadivka that you'd never hear of unless you've been praying for them. And just serving God for a long time there, preaching the gospel, and primarily what God has given him an opportunity to do is to minister to children in this poor little town and there's a lot of opposition, and there are a lot of attacks, and I know for sure that he struggles with, is there a point to what I'm doing, and how, God, what do you want for me? And he seeks God's will all the time, and yet he faithfully continues to serve in that way, and how much of a difference it makes if we pray, and if we thank God for what he's doing there, and we, and we hold him up in prayer. And that goes for everyone that you know, people from different churches that you know who are on the mission field. It's all the body of Christ. And Paul is such a great example that here he is in prison in Rome and he's praying for this church he's never even been to. It, but he, but he, he thanks God because the word, the truth of the gospel went out. And notice he says, I heard of your faith. I heard of your love, and it was because of the hope. Faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love. Those three are coupled a lot. Faith gives you hope and leads you to love. It all works together in a, in a powerful way. And he said, it's come to you as it has also in all the world. Now, you could look at that and go, all the world. Paul, aren't you exaggerating? Um, it's, uh, it's not all the world. And, and so you, you, know, you look at that and go, what's he talking about? Well, he could be referring to all the known world because everything that they pretty much knew of, the gospel had at least trickled out there through missionaries. But I think probably when he uses a term like this, it's similar to John 1 when he says, that Jesus, when he came into the world, he lights everyone who's come into the world. The idea is that he opens that word to everyone, that it's not, it doesn't discriminate. See, Colossae was primarily made up of Gentiles. There were a few Jews there who were trying to bring in the Jewish law and the Jewish um, ceremonial system and everything, but primarily these are Gentiles up there. But Paul's emphasis is, Man, the gospel is just going out to all kinds of people. It's going throughout the world. You can tell that Paul didn't think everybody had heard because he is always reminding everyone else to continue to, to go out and how he wanted to move into other regions where the gospel hadn't been heard. So he wasn't saying that everyone had heard. And even to this day, 
There are plenty of places where the gospel hasn't been preached yet, plenty of people in this world who have never heard of Jesus, and so the heart is always to offer it, but the idea here is that it's for everyone, and, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. That, I love that description of what it is to hear about Jesus, what it is to become a Christian, is knowing the grace of God in truth, understanding the nature of grace. And that's something that I learn more about God's grace all the time. But he says, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras had left Colossae, come to Rome to greet Paul, let him know how good things were going in Colossae, but also to pick his brain, no doubt, about some of these new philosophies that were popping up and some of the concerns that he had that some of the most spiritual people seemed to be kind of getting off track as quite often the people who sometimes have the deepest desire for spiritual life are sometimes the ones that can fall astray into kooky things. And so Epaphras was checking with Paul to bring him back to that anchor of the solid truth so they wouldn't become distracted. So he says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul does an interesting thing in addressing the Colossians. He takes some of the buzzwords of the Gnostics and the pre-Gnostics. And he uses them to let them know that everything that they're talking about, you already have it. One of those words is the word filled and perfected. The word filled and fullness was a huge term for these Eastern cults and ultimately in Gnosticism itself. And they taught that the fullness, the Greek word is pleroma, that the fullness is something that you get um, after going through a whole lot of different emanations, they taught that the Father emanated different steps and different angelic beings along the way, and there were these steps going down from the Father, and ultimately, Jesus was a product of those emanations, and so Jesus, along with angels and and spirit beings and things like that, are all steps toward getting to God. And so that whole processional um, assembly of steps was called the pleroma, was called the fullness. And so to have the total package, to have the full thing, was to be immersed in all of this stuff. It's very similar. L. Ron Hubbard stole much of Gnosticism in creating Scientology and their ideas that you continue to build and you wipe out these, these weird little creatures that are working against you, and that ultimately, as you pay for more and more courses, you can finally get free. You can finally get to the point where 
you have the, the depth of understanding. And they believe that any struggles, any problems that you have in your life is because you just haven't gone deep enough. This is very similar to what Gnosticism was. And so right away, Paul talks about the fact that I'm praying that you'll be filled with the knowledge, again, that gnosis of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So he gets their attention by saying, I'm into the fullness. I'm into the pleroma. I'm into deep spiritual understanding. I want all of that for you. And they go, oh, great. Paul's, Paul's speaks our language. He gets this stuff. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully, again that word, pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He didn't want to come off like, I don't want you to know God because knowledge is bad. I don't want you to be spiritual because spirituality is bad. He's saying, no, I want you to have everything that God has for you, but you're going to find it in Jesus Christ. He says that you'd be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. They were really into being enlightened. They were really into qualifying themselves. But notice how he subtly weaves this idea in and he goes, you know what? I've been praying that for you. And you have it. You have the inheritance. He has qualified us. You don't have to qualify yourself. I'm so thankful that I don't have to do something to be qualified to please God or to be used by God. The glorious truth of grace is I just need to understand he has qualified me already and I am a partaker of the inheritance of the saints. And when I do that, as he says there in verse 11, it gives you patience, power, long-suffering with joy. The thing that robs us of our joy is when we think we don't have everything we need. And you feel like, I'm coming up short. What Paul wants the Colossians to understand and what he would want us to understand is we are not coming up short. We have everything that we need already. On Sundays as we, as we get into um, contentment in the last chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's the same idea, learning to appreciate how much you have. It's so sad when people have plenty and they still spend all their time trying to get more. The only way to be successful is to realize that we've already been taken care of, that anything else we get is just extra, it's just an abundance, but God has given us all that we need, and he wants them to see that. And he goes on in talking about the light, he says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. The Colossians were very concerned about light and dark. They were scared to death of darkness. They were scared to death of the powers of evil. 
they almost felt like there was this huge tug of war, that it was like, man, the demons are fighting on one side and the angels are fighting on the other side and you never know who's going to win. He, he lets them know, you know, those aren't demons that are taking control of you. You have already been delivered from the power of darkness. It's not, a, it's not up in the air. God has delivered you by what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. You are already children of light. As John reminds us, walk in the light. <laughs> you have it, just walk in it. Live consistently with what you know. Here in Colossians, by the way, there are four chapters. The first two will lay down the doctrinal um, important concepts to understand. And then the second two chapters, chapters three and four, give us the practical ramifications of that. But they're all interwoven. But he wants us to understand that the Christian life is all about using what you already have. And the victory is already ours. He has delivered us from the power of darkness conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have, present tense, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That glorious message of the gospel, your sins have been forgiven. They've been dealt with. It's not this ongoing problem and battle. It's realizing that you've already been delivered. You've already been forgiven. It's not something that you have to make happen. It's something that he will make happen if you'll just realize what he's done. It's still something that the flesh is still there. And of course, um, this sinless perfection thing is nothing that the Bible would ever teach. In fact, it says that if you think that's you in 1 John chapter 1, you're, you're a liar. But he says we already have redemption. It's not that we don't sin. I mean... I'd love to not sin, but it's better than that. What I, the sins that I commit are forgiven, paid for already, redemption through his blood. That's way better than if you could stop sinning because if I could get strong enough to stop sinning, that would be good as long as I'm not sinning, but I still have to deal with the sins of my past as they would haunt me. And not only that, if I have a bad day and I sin again, I'm back where I started from. Every sin I've ever committed has already been forgiven. Every sin I will commit, he's committed to forgive. It was nailed to Jesus on the cross. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the good news. Not how can you struggle with your sin. It's realizing your sins have been forgiven. You've been purchased. You've been redeemed and bought back. Glorious truth of the gospel. Now, verse 15 can be kind of difficult. The Jehovah's Witnesses will often bring this up in denying the deity of Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The image of the invisible God makes it sound like, well, you know, he kind of looks like God. Um, the Greek word there is the word icon, uh, and it's an exact representation. It does, it, and remember, he, he is the icon, he is the visible of the invisible God. So what Paul's saying is, God is 
typically invisible. Old and New Testament say that, but the God that you see is Jesus. So when God wants to reveal himself, he reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So he is that icon. He is that exact representation. Now, over in Hebrews chapter 1, Paul, (laughs) or whoever wrote Hebrews, said in in verse um, 3, talking about Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That word for the ex- express image of his person in Hebrews 1.3 is the word that refers to something that was stamped out and ex- is an exact representation of, of that which is done. And in fact, if you looked at the thing that does the impression, it looks backwards. But the, the perfect representation is that which is Jesus Christ. And so that is not to say that he's less than the Father, quite the contrary. Jesus is the only God you'll ever see. But what about this business of being the firstborn over all creation? That word for firstborn doesn't just mean he was the first one who was born. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses will take this and say, Jesus was the first created being, and then everything else was created after him. But you're going to see in the context that can't possibly be it. It, The the word contradicts that completely. The word firstborn, prototakis, is is just a word that means the preeminent one. It's the one who is at the head. So, Traditionally, in a, in a Jewish family, for instance, the firstborn child, firstborn son anyway, girls didn't count, firstborn son was the one who was the leader of the family. And so the term came to represent the leader, but there were times when through various circumstances, the um, that birthright of being the one who was born first was passed on, as with Jacob and Esau. And then, actually, it wasn't the one who was born first who was the firstborn, but it was the one who had the rights. Um, And so it referred to position, a position of prominence, not to its origin necessarily. And as we read on, you'll see that really clearly. He's the firstborn, not of all creation, but over all creation. For, he goes on to explain, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, angels, demons, all things were created through him and for him, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He couldn't state it more strongly. Jesus is not a part of creation. Jesus is not just 
the first one, and then everybody else followed. As he goes on to say it in several different ways from several, several different angles, no, he's before everything. And not only that, everything that there is, everything that was created, was created by him and for him. So he can't be created because he couldn't create himself. That He couldn't have emanated from angels because angels and demons were all created by him and for him. So you get it. He's saying everything that was created was created by and for Jesus Christ. This is important for a couple of different reasons. For one thing, it proves that Jesus is not a created being. Now you might go, well, why would they think that? Well, he was born, and the first thing they knew of him was him being born of a virgin. So where was he before that? Obviously, you know, you could come to the conclusion that he must have been created in Mary's womb, and Paul wants to make it really clear, not at all. He predates everything that was created, and he is distinguished from everything that is created by the fact that he's the one who created it. So in Genesis chapter 1, when it said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ was doing the creating. Now the Father was intimately involved, as was the Spirit, but Jesus was the active agent in performing creation. <coughs> Remember, over in John chapter 1, we have the same thing. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, And then John goes on to say, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So again, almost parallel passages. Everything that was made was made by Jesus and for Jesus. And if you see God, you're seeing Jesus. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is all you're ever going to see. I don't believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to see the Father. I think we're just going to see Jesus. I think that every time Jehovah showed up in the Old Testament, it was Jesus, such as when he came and appeared to, in the form of the angel of the Lord to Abraham to talk about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and it identifies him as, as Yahweh, I think it was Jesus. We call that a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or a Christophany or a theophany. Whenever God appears, he appears as Jesus. And so Jesus is the visible part of God. And as he says, not only was everything made by him and for him and through him, <coughs> in him, verse 17, all things consist or hold together. We still don't really know what holds the forces inside an atom together. By, by all understanding of, that we have of electronics, there's no explanation as to what holds an atom together. And people postulate atomic glue and things like that. But ultimately, it's Jesus himself who is actively keeping this universe from exploding, from completely flying apart. He is actively involved in holding everything together. By him, 
all things hold together, all things consist. We don't even really understand what keeps our blood from come flowing right out through our skin. But everything in this world that you don't understand how it holds together, Jesus is involved in that. I was going to tell you another reason why he's making such a big deal about creation. Because to a Gnostic, creation was bad. The physical world was bad. When God created the world, he said, it's good. And he talks even after the fall as that the physical universe, that science itself, actually declares the glory of God. And so Paul wants to hammer this home too. Oh, all you spiritual people who are too spiritual for, for physical things, this physical universe was created by a perfect God and it's still held together by Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, not only is he firstborn in terms of priority over everything that exists, but he's the first one to rise, to raise himself from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And there's the theme of the book, that in all things Jesus Christ may have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father. The Father was in on this that in him that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. Again, all the pleroma, the total package, everything that there is to know, everything that there is to experience, the Father said it's all in Jesus. Now over in chapter two, in one of, the, in one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he says, in him dwelleth all the fullness, all the pleroma, of the Godhead in a bodily form. There is no stronger assertion of the deity of Christ than that. That in his body dwells the whole package of the Godhead, of everything that there is to God. And so here he introduces it and he keeps coming back to Pleroma throughout the book just to egg these guys on. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Reconciliation. The world fell apart when man sinned. Everything in this world is damaged, devastated by the results of sin. And the glorious gospel says that there's a reconciliation plan that Jesus Christ, through his blood, made it possible to turn everything right side up, to make everything return to the way that it was designed to be. Everything, whether the, in the angelic world, whether the immaterial world, or the physical universe, every part of it, he intends to reconcile it all to himself and make peace. The reason there's no peace is because there's no reconciliation. There's a war going on between sin and rebellion and the power of God. And you, personally, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Not will reconcile, he has reconciled. Because you accepted Jesus Christ, 
your problems are over. He's paid for your sins. He has provided a new life for you. And you're right with God. You are at peace with God. There's no reason for you to have to you know, circumvent some huge t- cavernous gulf. You're reconciled. You're okay right now if you're his child. In the body of his flesh through death, and again, reminding him, it was his physical body of flesh that did this. Perfect flesh. If there's something wrong with flesh, then we wouldn't look forward to the resurrection because when we are resurrected, we are going to have a fleshly body. It's not flesh that's the problem. Jesus lived in a body of flesh and was perfect. And someday we will have our resurrected bodies and they won't be, we won't be Casper the friendly ghost. We will be physical beings, be able to eat. We'll be able to do everything that a physical body is able to do. We'll just be perfect. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And then verse 23, which puzzles some people. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. (coughs) Now, that's a big if, isn't it? (laughs) He goes, yeah, you got it made if you continue in the faith, if you're grounded and steadfast, And you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which was preached to every creature under heaven? Hmm. Now, this is probably what, and most Greek scholars see this as being what's called a first-class condition in the Greek. It takes that conditional word, if, and it presupposes, of course this is true. So, another way to render this would be, if you continue, and you will. But, and so he's more saying, now, what if you don't? What if you choose to walk away? Again, we've been through this before plenty of times. Um, there are warnings in Scripture about people leaving and rejecting the gospel and apostatizing. Now, does that mean you can lose your salvation? I don't like to say it that way because to me, if you leave, you never had salvation. Maybe you thought you did. Maybe you were hanging around. But if it doesn't last forever, it's not eternal life. He doesn't force anyone to stay. But if you want to be saved, you'll be saved. And I believe there is an act of regeneration of the Holy Spirit that happens when you sincerely give your life to Jesus Christ and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, and there are plenty of promises to let us know. We don't have to sit and worry about whether we're going to stay saved or not. Um, We're secure in the hand of God. But the Bible does call us all to make sure that we really are of the household of faith. And so there's this thing of, well, hey, if you're saved, you're saved, you're secure. But do you know you're saved? How do you know that? Well, you hang in there. First John chapter 2, they went out from among us because they weren't really of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed, but they left in order to show that they weren't really of us. So what do I make of this? 
probably, and this is what Calvinists call the perseverance of the saints. If you're really a saint, you'll stay a saint. And if you leave being a saint, you weren't one anyway. That's not bad. I mean, that's, I can, I can kind of buy into that. But you go, but wait a minute. What if I decide to leave? Well, I guess you never were. Those people who did miracles in Jesus' name, Jesus didn't say, yeah, I used to know you, but we fell out of touch. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me. But it becomes semantics at some point. But if you want to be safe, how about just sticking with him? And then this will be talking about you. This is talking about people who are steadfast. This is what the Christian life looks like. It looks like people who continue in the faith. Just keep doing what you're doing. Be grounded, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. This is the normal Christian life. And as long as you have the normal Christian life, you're fine. He, he, will, he will hang on to you. Christianity is not us hanging on to him. It's him hanging on to us. Now, if you look at that and go, well, that's not fair, go ahead and leave. But he would never really entertain the idea that anyone would want to leave. I would propose that if you ever decide you don't want to be saved anymore, you don't really understand what it is to be saved. Because once you experience that closeness with God, you'd never want to leave it. But at the same time, I don't want to come off super dogmatic in this because there are passages, including this one, that could leave the door open. And I think God has reasons for not just making it locked tight and very clear. I'm not worried about it. I am absolutely eternally secure. There's no way in the world I am ever going to even entertain the notion of not wanting to walk with God. And I believe it's because he's hanging on to me, but I'm counting on it too. And if you are sincere in your relationship with the Lord, I don't think you have anything to worry about. If you ever start worrying about it, then I think you have nothing to worry about. Because people who aren't saved don't worry about it. Nobody ever, if you're ever going, oh no, I think I lost my salvation. I can guarantee you, you didn't lose your salvation. If you lost your salvation, you wouldn't even think about it. You wouldn't, you'd, you'd just think, how stupid of me that I used to think that, but I don't care now. Well, then maybe you lost something or maybe you never had it. I don't care how you want to describe it. But if you care, as long as you care, he cares. Because the only way you can care is if he gives you that. That faith is a gift from him. So don't let Satan rip you off. There are a lot of people who think they're saved who aren't. There are a lot of people who aren't saved, who are saved, who think they aren't. Satan just likes to mess with you. But the reality is the Christian walk is a walk of being steadfast. It's hanging in there. It's being grounded continuing in the faith and Paul said that's what I became a minister of that's what my life is about that's what I want to communicate and so he says I now rejoice in my sufferings for you I'm going through a tough time and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Paul talks about this in several places, that he feels that his suffering on behalf of Christians is something that he's actually participating in the sufferings of Christ. 
Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't suffer enough to pay for our sins, but what it means is the way that Jesus, the gospel, gets presented is often through suffering. And every time you suffer as a Christian, you are participating. There's a divine purpose in that. You have an opportunity to demonstrate to people the power of God, the power of his deliverance, the power of grace, that you're going through a tough time and you're hanging in there and praising God and loving him, and that communicates in a way that's much greater than you know, a bunch of miracles, a bunch of powerful tricks, you know, people coming to church and all of a sudden all their cavities are filled and they see gold dust falling down. And that says nothing to people who are hurting. But people who are hurting who see other people who are hurting and yet who have a faith through that, oh man, that's powerful stuff. And I think that the greatest messages that we ever get from God come through watching his people suffer and cling to him and give him glory. I know, boy, I've, I've had some, some people who I love who've died recently and another one who's just on the verge and watching their faith, watching how confidently they face death, knowing that their Redeemer lives, knowing that they're on their way to heaven, that would tell more to me than a thousand people being healed of having one leg shorter than the other one. That's nothing. That says nothing. Man, is there power in the midst of suffering. And so Paul said, hey, don't worry. I'm happy to do this because great things are happening as a result of it, and I'm fulfilling the word of God. I can relate to Jesus as I suffer. And he says... um, The mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed. Oh, they were really into mysteries, but they thought only certain people could solve the mysteries. He's saying, hey, the only mystery, nobody knew about it until Jesus came and died and rose from the dead, and now it's been revealed. It's not a mystery anymore. The only mystery you need to know is not about deciphering something from the stars. It's not about reading the Bible backwards or taking every 10th letter and having a secret message or figuring out what the 666 in the Antichrist name is. Those are stupid. The real mystery has already been solved. Jesus Christ died for our sins and reconciled us to God. And he goes, that's the mystery. And it's, and it's now been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, no less, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what Christianity is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He goes, you want perfection? The hope of Jesus. Jesus is in you, Someday he'll be like you. As John said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it hasn't yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's all you need. Mystery solved. Someday 
perfection. You don't need perfection right now. You'll have it when you need it, and it's going to come as a free gift. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So what a great opening to his letter to the Colossians. You want mystery? He goes, I got mystery. You want fullness? You got it. You want greatness? You want angelic beings? God is boss. You want the highest preeminence? He's living in you. He's with you. You've met him. He died for you. He's changed your life. Don't look for anything past Jesus. It's not Jesus plus some other experience. It's not Jesus plus understanding some things or Jesus plus crawling on your hands and knees through broken glass or Jesus plus enough fasting and prayer, getting down to your original weight. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's just Jesus. And that's what Paul just hammers in four chapters of Colossians, and it's a great word for us. And it's Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. He's the one that this is all about. Everything. He is the fullness. He's the pleroma. He's the whole package. It's just Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus. That you chose to put it all on him and in him. And that we can be assured that we're going to hold together. Sometimes it feels like we're falling apart but we're being held together by the same one who holds together the atomic structure of the universe. He holds our very breath. And in him we consist and will consist. And we know we can make it. We know we can hang in there. We know we will endure. Because the one who holds us holds the universe who created us. Thank you for allowing us to know him. Help us to represent him as being what it's all about. Thank you that the mystery, the only one that matters, has been solved for us. We thank you for your glorious word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I went a little...